Welcome back, everybody, to the Legal Weekly Wine, where we touch the week's hottest legal topics, and we continue on quite a roll here. Last week, we touched whether the 14th Amendment, Section 3, under the 14th Amendment, would disqualify Donald Trump from running again in the 2024 election, which is truly blowing up across the country. So today what we're going to do is we're going to revisit the topic based on the lawsuits that since we talked have been filed. There have been three lawsuits that have been filed asking to disqualify Trump based on Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. We're going to talk about that and what's happening now. We are also, in the second part, going to talk about Mark Meadows. Um, this is It all seems political, but what's happening is legal. And this week, Mark Meadows testified in front of a federal judge regarding his actions in this alleged conspiracy. And the question surrounding whether it will be bumped and moved to a federal case, whether he will have federal immunity, and what will happen with the testimony that he gave. So that's part two. And part three is Giuliani's defamation suit. What in the world has happened with it? Why was there default? Why is he sanctioned? And why is he supposed to pay attorney's fees? So these are the three topics we are going to hit within the next hour. Don't be afraid of the timeline. If you don't like one time, skip ahead, catch the other topic, go back to a different one. But we, those are the three that we're going to hit. So follow us along as we figure out what is happening legally across the United States in this last week of August of 2023. I'm Virginia Tarani. I am an attorney. I work with the Tarani Law LLC because you never need a lawyer tell you do. I am also the CEO and owner of The Law Unscripted, which is hosting this podcast. And with us, we have today a constitution expert. He is an expert in the constitution, the amending process, constitutional law, the founding fathers, and rewriting the American constitution. And we have with us Dr. John Vile from Middle Tennessee State University, who is the dean of the Honors College. Welcome back. Good to be here. All right. So we are so lucky to have you during this continuing debate of all of the times that we could have had this podcast be talking about these issues. We are lucky to have our own constitution experts. So last week we talked about all of the books that you have written, and I'd love for you briefly to touch on at least a couple of the ones that are especially appropriate in this situation. I understand there's the rewriting of the Constitution, um, there's the essential Supreme Court decisions, and what are some of the others that you have? Again, probably the companion to the United States Constitution and its amendments. That's that's one of the more readable books, you know, for a general audience. And it goes, the, the frustrating thing about it is I usually only publish it every four or five years. I think it's in its sixth or seventh edition right now. And I'm already wishing that I had had you could go back in and revise it section on section uh, section three of the 14th Amendment, well, uh, as I, well as a lot of the legal developments. I think we may need to go ahead and do that. We, we need to contact the publishers and let's let's well, get that started. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe so. So. So, yeah. So thanks for coming. Um, what we're going to do as the weekly wine again, don't go away. Join us for the rest of it. We are getting to each topic. Um, but because it's the weekly wine, we are publishing this on Friday for happy hour. Join us for happy hour. Grab a glass of your favorite wine. Um, sit back 
back and relax as we talk. Hopefully you won't get too upset, but maybe excited about the things that we're saying. And today I am joining with another rosé. Last week we did a rosé and I think that at the end of the summer it's a nice light um, crisp way to to go. I am doing a Barton and Gustier, um, a rose d'Anjou. And this is the, again, beautiful bottle. It's a rosé. They're always very pretty. Um, it's a delightful taste, very much the end of the summer kind of taste. Um, so cheers to happy hour at the end of this week. By the way, while you're drinking, yes, uh, tell me. I told someone I was on the weekly wine and Perhaps because they knew me too well, they asked if it was W-I-N-E or W-H-I-N-E. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it is a play on words. Um, and yes. we, we did struggle with which which spelling to use when, when, when we started to certify our Legal Weekly Wine. But really, please interpret it as you wish. Um, and here we go on the wine. So, um, Dr. Vile, last week we did talk about Truly, this article, as a brief recap, this article came out by two leading legal professionals, law professors who were legal scholars, um, conservatives, as I understand, that they have- Yes, and then they, they were joined by a conservative judge, Judge Ludig, and a fairly liberal um, Harvard professor, Lawrence Tribe. Right. So there, it's not simply a liberal conservative conservative uh, issue here. Right. Um, so parties on on both sides, uh, you know, of of the spectrum, that they're alleging that Section Three of the Fourteenth Amendment would disqualify. Donald Trump from even being on the ballot and from running for president. Not that he can't be president or be elected as president, but he can't even be on the ballot. So what is, based on your understanding of it and the Constitution, what's the basis of that argument? Right. The, that section was adopted, as we discussed last week. Of um, course, 14th Amendment was adopted in 1868. The amendment was primarily designed to overturn the Dred Scott decision, which had said that African-Americans were not could not be citizens. And it declared that all persons born or naturalized in the United States are citizens thereof. And then it went on to outline certain rights. Well, there are other provisions of the, of the 14th Amendment as well. One was to penalize states that refused to give voting rights uh, to the newly enfranchised African-Americans. Another was a, a provision dealing indicating that the government would pay union debts, but they would not pay debts for money that had been borrowed by the Confederacy to fight against them. Sure. And then there's Section 5, which is frequently invoked, which is the congressional enforcement power. But Section 3 was designed, what was happening was after the states started rejoining or attempting to rejoin the union, many of the southern states were electing some of the generals and office holders who had at one time, you know, had all taken oaths to uphold the Constitution and then instead had given their loyalty to the Confederacy. And so the provision stated, and by the way, there is an out, uh, although, right. I mean, there's a provision that, we'll start with the, the provision basically mm -hmm. says if you've taken an oath to support the Constitution and then you've engaged in insurrection against it, then you can no longer 
uh, hold public office. Um, now, the out is uh, unless Congress were to give its approval. The, uh, the problem clause. here, right, if, if Congress said, well, yes, Robert E. Lou fought against the Union, but uh, he was also a noble man or, you know, what, whatever. Right. Uh, we think that, you know, he's now pledged to support the union and we think that he would do that. Uh, they could do it. But, you know, imagine uh, it's pretty, pretty hard for Donald Trump to go to court and say or go to Congress and say, I admit that I engaged in insurrection against the United States, uh, but I'd now like to be exonerated for it. So right. I don't I don't think that's much of an option here. But the the question, of course, you know, this is, well, the, the immediate question is, is this something that's simply applied one time? Right. We know it was designed primarily for a specific situation involving the Confederacy. On the other hand, you can make an argument that, you know, they knew if it happened once, it might happen again. And this is sort of, you know, fair warning to anybody. If you war against the United States, you engage in insurrection, you're no longer going to be eligible for office. The problem, of course, put, becomes... And, and just to, to jump in here, yeah. they didn't put a timeline on the amendment. There's nothing that says the Confederacy. There's nothing that right. says only the 1860s or 1870s or, right. you know, there's nothing that specifically mentions the Civil War, nor is there a timeline that says through whatever X date. It's right. open. So in my mind, the framers of that amendment at least seem to leave it open for eternity or, you know, the continuing existence of the United States. Yeah. You know, this goes to, or there's been a lot of development, you know, one, one method, and it's only one of many, but one method for constitutional interpretation is original intent. Mm -hmm. right. And early on, some of the formulations were a little sloppy, uh, People would say, well, I, you know, we have a private letter here from Thomas Jefferson or James Madison that indicates that, you know, he favored this or that. So that must be the intent. And over time, people said, well, no, obviously, it's not a subjective intent that was never communicated. And sometimes people will go, it's not even necessarily the intent of the authors as it is so much the intent of the ratifiers. Sure. And, you know, truthfully, I don't know how many of them thought about the future. I mean, they were dealing with a very concrete situation. So right. a very narrow view of original intent would say, that's it, that's all. But as you say, the often original intent is combined with plain meaning of the language. Right. Plain meaning of the language doesn't have a time limit and so might be applicable. Now, who's going to enforce it and what happens if you have half the states that, that allow it and half don't, well, right. probably what will happen, it'll go to the Supreme Court. And Trump probably thinks that he has a pretty good chance there, although Nixon thought he had a pretty good chance uh, when he, you know, when he argued for executive privilege in U.S. versus Nixon and ended sure. up, you know, losing by an eight to zero vote, including four of his own appointees. So, so what we have now then is we've had people pick it up. Like you're saying, I think yes. this is absolutely headed to the Supreme Court because now we've already had, we were anticipating that there would be lawsuits and now we have them. The day our episode aired last week regarding this issue, that day last Friday, the first lawsuit dropped regarding mm. 
whether Trump could be on the ballot. And it you was think in we Florida. ought to charge him for legal advice, maybe? That's right. Holy crap. I'm sure, I'm sure, you know, <laughs> if it happened after, it must have been because of our broadcast. He right? listened to us. He crafted yes. it. That- <laughs> <laughs> you know, Lawrence Tribe, Ludic, they just weren't sure. But when when you and I, you know Virginia Tarani think- and John Vile. That's right. They said, well, we got to we got to file a lawsuit. The famous anyway. legal team. They have to do <laughs> something. Legends in our own mind. OK. <laughs> Very true. So so our wonderful ideas and predictions. And, and this is interesting because we're not necessarily saying which way it's going to go, right. because I honestly think it could go either way. Um, so for us, the idea is, well, we're predicting that there will be lawsuits. We're predicting that there will be a Supreme, will have to be a Supreme Court ruling on it, or at least go up to the Supreme Court and right. see, are they going to accept it? But those lawsuits have started now. So we right. had our first one in Florida on Friday, and go ahead. Well, the court may very well decide it's moot unless and until he's actually nominated by the Republican Party. So that, but the problem, of course, with that is. After he's nominated, then it makes it much more difficult for that party if he were to be prohibited yes. uh, from, you know, nominating someone, you know, recognizing, well, he's not going to be the top candidate, so we need to go with somebody else. So right. I don't know. I mean, usually judicial, you know, those who favor judicial restraints say if it all, if at all possible, keep out a political you know, matters like this, leave them to the determination of the other branches. Mm-hmm. And, and but what's happening, I think, is they're trying to push the issue yes. before the nomination. So the Florida's got one, New Hampshire's got one, and Michigan has one. And each of them, all three of them, have chosen this discussion, this 14th Amendment, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, to move to prevent the secretaries of state for putting him on the ballot. So they are saying, you know, Mr. Judge in federal court, (laughs) we believe that the 14th Amendment or misjudge, judge, (laughs) judge of the federal court. There we go. Judge of the federal court. um, Mr. Trump is not allowed to be on the ballot. He's disqualified because he engaged, we believe he engaged in insurrection and rebellion and or, and they really, these three really focus on the second part of it, that he gave, they believe he gave aid and comfort, and comfort to those who were doing insurrection or rebellion. So their right. lawsuits really focus on the second half right. of that. They're not hitting so much that he was doing insurrection or rebellion, but that he's giving aid and comfort. And because of that, we're asking you to prevent and prohibit Mr. Trump from being placed on the ballot, which would mean they would have to order, the judge would have to order the secretaries of state from, you know, to prevent him from being put on the ballot. So they're and saying you can't do that. Something we might add here, and you, you, I'm sure you know this, and I did not get the name of the case, but there is one case in which I believe a New Mexico judge has disqualified yes. an individual from office because that person was one of the so-called fake electors. Correct. Or was attempted to be. So there's there's one precedent out mm-hmm. there. You know, it's a state precedent. He's that's you know, he's not hardly a president. Um, but that 
could, you know, gives a little bit of aid and comfort to the side that's trying to exclude Trump. Exactly. So in my mind, I think it's good timing so that we can have a determination before the the nomination, not even the election, but before the nomination. Let's find out what the decision is going to be. So that way, if judges start deciding, the other secretaries of state can review the issue and can decide, well, if they're not being, you know, if these other states are not allowed to put him on the ballot, then maybe we shouldn't. And even the Arizona secretary of state and the New Hampshire secretary of state, along with his attorney general, they have come out this week confirming that they are reviewing the issue, that they're actually reviewing this argument, this 14th Amendment argument. You know, as a political scientist, I need to add something here. Please. Which is, it is possible that this, that's, that a decision for Trump, Mm -hmm. which, which might simply be, it's not up for us to decide. It's up for Congress to decide whether an insurrection has occurred. But it's possible that these suits could actually help Trump. Yes. Because if the court were mm-hmm. to say he can run, he could say it wouldn't be exactly accurate because not guilty is not necessarily an exoneration. Exactly. But he could claim it to be an exoneration. I mean, We need to remember we're talking about someone who's apparently raised seven million dollars, give or take a million or two, uh, or a billion or two, (laughs) depending. Talk to the New York Attorney General, and she might tell you it's a couple billion. But you know, in any event, I mean, I think the point's made. Yeah. Yeah, and I like that because it could go either way. For me, I just want to see which way. And if we can have a determination before we get to the nomination, we can say, okay, the courts have reviewed it and they right. have already pre-decided that he can be and should be on the ballot to be you know, reviewed by the popular vote or that he shouldn't. And in my and we, mind, that's important. We do know, at least in New Hampshire, it's my understanding that the Republican Party has said, we're going to fight this. We believe that we believe that Trump does deserve to be on the ballot, and you can sort of make it an issue. I mean, it's a legal issue, but you can also, if you go to the political science side, you say, well, shouldn't it, instead of the court determining whether he's eligible, shouldn't the American people decide whether he did or did not give aid and comfort? So, right. the, in, we, I don't know if we've talked in this broadcast, but sometimes the court will will identify an issue as a political question, which usually means it's one for the elected branches. But here you could sort of broaden it out and say it's really a matter for the electorate decides when. Now, that wouldn't work very well, probably, if you want to have original intent. That's not how it worked right after the Civil War. You didn't leave it up to voters to select someone who had previously taken an oath, but you could, I could see the basis of making that a sort of a a small de-democratic argument, you know, let the people decide. Absolutely. That it's up to them. But the, the people who put the, the men who put forth the, the articles, the original articles are saying, well, the people should decide, but that's the individual electors and the individual states, the people who put him on the ballot, they're the ones who are supposed to interpret the Constitution. And it's their belief that it should be interpreted in this way that Mr. Trump did violate 
this section right. of the 14th it, Amendment and can't be put on. It's, you know, I'm, as you know, I mostly supervise theses now, but there are times this year when I wish I were actually teaching constitutional law yeah. rather than just sitting on the <laughs> sidelines. And you did so well, and you taught constitutional law for decades. Yes, I did. <laughs> Let's not go into how many. Okay. okay. <laughs> I won't give it away. I'll just say decades. One, two, three, I, whatever. So, did, did I tell you, I don't know if we were going to get to this or not, but I, did I tell you about the major mistake that I made this week? You were mentioning that you did make one. So let's talk about it because I think it is actually in relation to Trump being on the ballots. Okay. Yeah. So I was on a call-in program, which I like, by the way. This this is this is going to be your next level of the weekly wine. Is and, and we'll we'll see if there's a progression from you know, when people have had just a sip to to the end of the, <laughs> to the, end the, of the, the broadcast. Hour. <laughs> so, what kind of questions? But I made the statement in very good faith, by the way, that one of the fascinating things about the current Republican contest is that Trump and DeSantis can't both be on the ballot. Because I said, the Constitution says you can't have two people from the state, same state as president. Now, practically, what I said probably is true, but it's not actually constitutionally true. And I, you know, I got home, I said, did I say that? You know, I think I got it right. But I looked it up and no. So let's what the Constitution it. says is that if you're an elector, you have to vote for at least one person who is not from your state in terms of president and vice president. So particularly if you're dealing with a state like uh, Florida, I looked it up, they have 27 representatives and two U.S. senators, so they have a total of 29 electoral votes. Okay. So if you're absolutely convinced that you're going to win the electoral college by a huge margin and you don't need their votes, you could do it. But it would mean when you, if if the election came down to those 29 electors, mm -hmm. you could end up with a situation that we had prior to the 12th Amendment, where you ended up with a president from one party and a vice president from the other, because the people who uh. voted for Trump could not vote for DeSantis if he were the vice presidential nominee or vice versa. Or, you know, could you have a stab oh, in the back? I, well, I don't know if that would work or not. But in any in any event. Uh, practically, you know, unless you're from Vermont or, you know, Rhode Island, you have, you have such a small state is not likely. But even then, I mean, 2000, you know, we've had elections that have been determined, well, 1876, 77, but by, by, by a single vote uh, or a single state. So anyway, so what, so that's I learned something. I, I like being on uh, call-ins because people challenge you and then you think, okay, did they get it right or not? I got that one wrong. <laughs> but the, but this is fascinating. So it's another, it's a different constitutional argument. Yes. And it's not the one to disqualify President Trump, former President Trump, from being on the ballot based on any actions that he did. But it's a separate constitutional issue with regard to state residency. Right. And apparently in the Bush, in the Bush Cheney, so I guess it would be 2000, they barely escaped this because Cheney had been a resident of Texas, but he switched his citizenship. He got a license, driver's license, and maybe even a residence in Wyoming. And so it did not become an issue, but otherwise it could have become an issue. 
So what happens? How do we prevent it from being an issue? Would one of them have to drop out of well, the race? You just, you, no, you, you just, I mean, you, you need to win by a big enough margin that one state's votes <laughs> don't matter, basically. Wow. But, you know, in the, in the current, I mean, to take another example, right now you have Tim Scott and uh, Nikki Haley, uh, both hailing from South Carolina. So it's unlikely, although there would be some advantage to a ticket like that, a woman and an African-American or, or vice versa. Right. Um, but probably it wouldn't be prudent to run two people who are both hailing from the same state. Oh, my goodness. Okay, so there's even more complications, more constitutional implications that I hadn't Absolutely. thought of. Wow. Well, that's how we learn. Okay, so now we are going to, for everybody, we're going to do part two, and I'm turning some volume down here. Um, so part two, so we're putting the constitutional issue regarding the upcoming election to the side. That was part one. Part two, on to Mark Meadows. Um, okay. So Mark Meadows, let's make sure we get everything right. Mark Meadows was the former White House chief of staff for Donald yes. Trump. Um, during the election time. And I want to make sure it's clear to everyone why we're talking about this on a legal podcast. Again, it, it seems like a political one based on all the players that we're talking about, but we want to make sure that we're talking about the constitutional issues, the legal issues, which are hand in hand, constitutional law. And in this one, it's more practical. The question with Meadows that has come in this week is what is the role of the White House chief of staff? And how does that affect him on a state indictment, a state criminal right. indictment, where he has right. been charged under the Georgia indictments against the 19 defendants um, right. related this is to— This Fonnie Willis, the, the indictments that she's brought in Georgia. Exactly. So Mark Meadows is one—as the chief of staff, is one of the 19 defendants named. He's being charged with two counts— the racketeering, the, the RICO count, the racketeering count, okay. as well as the um, solicitation of violation of oath by public officer. And he has made a motion in federal court. So Fonnie Willis's indictments are in state court. And he has gone to the federal court and said, this case for me should be removed from the state court into the federal court. Okay. And the reason he is suggesting that this happens is this little federal law that says that if you are acting within your federal official duties, right. then the state case can be removed to federal court and you may have immunity for your right. actions that you did as a federal official. And judges in general typically have immunity. You know, they can make a really lousy decision and unless they did it on the basis of bribery sure. or, you know, utter corruption, I'm sorry the judge made a mistake, but judges have to make opinions, you know, render decisions all the time. If we held them liable every time we thought one of them was wrong, you know, no one would ever become a judge under those circumstances. So, exactly. so the, the doctrine of federal, you know, president has a certain immunity. Uh, he can sometimes fire people that you would think was without cause, but... You know, he's head of the executive branch. Mm -hmm. He has the right, in many cases, to do that. Uh, police officers have immunity. Yes. Uh, sometimes, you know, if if they're, well, depending on the case, you know, they don't, they don't have immunity to beat people up to death and that oh, sort of thing. Right, but they but, have a qualified know, you, immunity. 
Right. You, 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 you realize that they may have to make decisions on the spur of the moment mm-hmm. that are not the best decisions, but they're the decisions they had to make. So and the, the doctrine of immunity is not terribly unusual, but and, and I think what, what we're going to find here, I think, is we're going to find a mixed bag. Mm. I think we're going to find that as chief of staff, part of what Meadows did probably was part of his regular job. But to the extent, you know, one of the examples that has been used is, you know, yes, he's the chief of staff. But if the president were to say, I want you to help me plan to rob a bank, then you could no longer claim that that participation in that event was part of his regular job. Right. And again, when I said it's a mixed bag, you may find that certain, you know, maybe setting up a phone call, (laughs) if that's what chiefs of staff do, maybe that in and of itself wasn't culpable. But if he participated in the phone call or if he called ahead and said, you know, here's what, you know, here's what we're going to try to get you to do or that sort of thing, then he might. And I think what will be fascinating, there's an article just out on uh, that I just read in which somebody says what you ought to do is judge, um, what was the term that I gave you? I gave it to you. We talked about it earlier. Oh, goodness. The, the I want to say not preponderance of the evidence. Um, no, totality of the circumstances. So it might be, or, or it may, you know, maybe what the judge will say is, well, I would agree that for, in terms of your indictment, uh, you know, this charge looks like it would go in federal court, but this other doesn't seem to be part of your duty, and so you can be judged here. I don't know if that's yeah. like that, how it will go out, but and I believe there are actually arguments being made Thursday afternoon. Is that right? And then at least so we being might filed. even know by the time people are watching this. Exactly. So everyone watching, we are taping on Thursday. It comes out by Friday for edits and everything. Um, but you're right. They have to have filed, I believe, by the end of, of Thursday yeah. as to additional arguments that the judge was looking for, at least into Friday. And I believe that the judge was seeking a, a specific type of argument where he was suggesting that, or the question is, is there a difference or what happens if he's qualified under some actions, right. but not all actions? Like you were saying, maybe, you know, the one phone call doesn't count, but the other one does. So what if his, all of his actions don't fall under it? Not all of his actions were, you know, federal. They're not all within his specific role as chief of staff. Some are outside. So what happens then? And I think that goes to your question. Would one charge be pulled out and brought to federal court and the remaining charge be left in Fulton County in state court? Or would both come with it? So if he's qualified in some but not all, I don't know. And the judge, I appreciate the judge taking his time. It's a district court judge, Steve Jones, said that he he understands that this may set precedent and right. it will be. And apparently there is no precedent. None that what, we what know he, of. Is what he's saying. Um, <laughs> so, yes, it, it could be a very consequential, you know, the thing about judicial decisions, yeah. they set precedents. Yes. And to the extent that the courts go with story decisis, then, you know, you can't just look at how does this affect Meadows? How does it affect Trump? 
how might it affect, you know, a case 50 years down the road or 100 years down the road? Exactly. And then the other defendants who have started filing the same motions to remove their cases to federal court based on qualified immunity. Right. And, and of course, and you, you know, you, I think we're going to get to this, but you, you also have two of the two of the defendants who are asking for an early trial. Correct. And part Sydney of the question, and Kenneth Cheeseborough. Right. And so the question is, can you try some of them earlier than others? Right. And I think we talked last week, you know, uh, I believe Clark was the first uh, to, to do this request. And it, it's either very, very smart or very, very stupid. I mean, it, it, it's it's hard yeah. to say uh, it, it, if he. Yeah. Yeah. It, it could go either way. It could be the best decision any of them made. And he made it first or it could be the absolute worst. It, it is. This is so it's such an interesting time because it is there's so many precedents that will be started because there are well, so many that haven't this hasn't been addressed before. And to my knowledge, there's never been I, I think there's been RICO cases that have had six to eight individuals, but I'm not sure we've ever had one with I think it's either 18 or 19 defendants at once. And so I don't know, yeah. you, you know, just the, the logistics um, and she's might, still, Willis is still wanting to try all 19 at the same time. Well, the motion she's she saying wrote. she wants to. I, I don't <laughs> Whether know, she I don't does. know if she really does or not. <laughs> right. But, and that was, you know, some of the motions that were filed this week as well is she's saying yes. we want clarification from the judge as to whether he meant right. for all of them to be set on the October 23rd day or whether right. he meant to actually separate them. Yeah. Um, he's granted that day for at least Kenneth Cheeseborough and Sidney Powell. But what does that mean for the rest of the defendants? And she's saying, I still want all 19 there. So we're going to see what the judge does with that. But for Mark Meadows, one of the questions that the judge asked was, is there a role under, and this is for you, our constitution expert, uh -oh. to see if, if you even know. There is a role, is there a role under Article 2 of the Constitution for the president in a state election or any election? That is the judge's question that was on record. What do you well, think? Well, I mean, certainly one role that any president can, can play is you always have the right to go to court to challenge you or someone under you to challenge electoral results. If you think there was fraud involved, I mean, there's nothing there was nothing illegal about Gore challenging mm. Bush or vice versa during the 2000 election. There wasn't anything illegal about Trump forces. Uh, basically, there were like 50 appeals and right. they were in multiple states, uh, asked for recounts, asked for clarifications, you know, examination of evidence. Now, unfortunately for Trump, most of them. All of them, I think, eventually went against him. Right. Uh, so you, you actually have that rule. But but I think, you know, constitutionally, the, the, there was there was a pretty clear division between, you know, the you, well, think about it. the president, <laughs> the president, particularly if he's an incumbent, should not be deciding who, the, who won the election, right? Right. So uh -oh. under the Constitution, which article is it that, that discusses the elections and whose responsibilities and roles are they? Well, I mean, the, the quick, the, the easy part is Article 1 is the legislative 
Article two, the executive, Article three, the judicial branch. And I think much of it, I have to go, I have to take a look, think about this a little bit, but most of the electoral college, I believe, is outlined in Article two. That would make, I mean, it's under the executive branch, but there's no, actually, you know, one of the more problematic things, I think it's absolutely clear that the vice president has a ceremonial role the pres as president of the Senate in, you know, the ballots are open. He says ballots of Florida go here, ballots of Georgia go there. Um, but that turns out to be have become problematic because apparently for the first time in history, you have a president leaning on his vice president and saying, I either want you to not count a state right. or at the very least say we have two interpretations. We're going to send it back to the state to decide. And by the way, you know, this is this is an argument that seems to have been hatched. I don't know if it's Cheeseboro and or Eastman right. or one. I don't sure which one of them the attorneys came up had. with it. But there there has been in California, there's a, like a 92 page uh, analysis that has been done there in which someone says, okay, Eastman is a professor to go with original intent. He goes through each election in American history, or pretty much all, all the, all the ones that are relevant. And he says, there has never been a case of a vice president being asked or exercising independent judgment of his own. He's basically a clerk. And that of course, I think I think that argument is being made as to whether uh, Eastman should be disbarred from the California bar. Correct. Uh, but it obviously has, you know, I mean, it. some have said maybe, you know, it's such an unusual thing. You hate to go in and change the Constitution just because, you know, one person tries to arguably misinterpret it. But, you know, I could see somebody saying, well, you know, vice president shouldn't be determined. The vice president shouldn't be determining the results, but in case anybody is mis, you know, misunderstands the role of the vice president, his role is a ceremonial role. We'll write it in, or sure. or better yet, you know, we're going to appoint. I don't know the administration of the General Services Administration, <laughs> They'll just or read it off, right? You, you know, somebody, a, a, a judge, someone who you would think to be nonpartisan. I mean, think of the, the the amazing thing about what Pence did, although printing a precedent, you know, Richard Nixon certified um, that John Kennedy won the election. Right. Albert Gore, sort of junior, certified that George Bush had won. And I suppose mm -hmm. I suppose Thomas Jefferson had to certify that John Adams, Adams had won the first election in their contest because he was vice president. You know, he had a. Federalist president and a Democratic Republican vice president, but uh, Jefferson didn't say, "Well, I'm going to discount this state because I'd really like to be president myself." Sure. So yeah. Anyway. So so with Meadows, I think the the big question will be in his case two two parts is what is his role? Was was he acting within a federal role? Right. And then. What's going to happen with his testimony? Because he actually testified. 
And let me tell you, as a former prosecutor and a former (laughs) criminal defense attorney, my jaw hit the ground when I found out that Meadows was testifying because if I had any defendant on either side, prosecution or defense, who was indicted facing actual criminal charges in a court, and they told, I found out that they were going to testify under oath on the record in another court about issues pertaining to that indictment, I would have lost my mind. As a prosecutor, I would have grabbed popcorn and joined joined the cause, you know, turned on my video camera, joined the cause in the back. As a defense attorney, my stomach might have come out of my body um, and I may never have eaten again as sick as I would have (laughs) felt of saying, oh, my gosh, why are you testifying and putting on record statements that can then be used in the prosecution that is pending? And on top of that, that testimony, not only can it be presented if, if it doesn't go up to federal court, if it doesn't get removed to federal court and stays in the Georgia state court, all of those statements, Ms. Willis can bring in. She can bring them in in her prosecution against right. Mr. Meadows and say, this is what he said. He's right. admitting, and I've seen multiple legal scholars And apparently some of his testimony, it. he did have some as as I would as well, some lapses as I don't remember. I don't uh, but recall. The, yeah. But, but there were some other parts where he did seem to say, you know, yes. Uh, well, you know, the attorney general told me that the he, that Trump had lost the election. His counsel told me he had lost the election. Uh, so, so he's admitting that to proceed. he knew. Yes, I continued to proceed. I mean, that that on the surface seems inculpatory. It, it and does. One, you know, one of the fascinating, we, we should probably repeat something from last week. Yes. Which is the tricky thing about this is if Trump were to be reelected, he could probably pardon Meadows. He might be able to pardon himself. That's another question. If it's a but federal could, case. Right. He can pardon him for a federal case. Although, ironically, it appears as though Meadows has cooperated with federal prosecutors. It appears. We don't know for sure, but that's, you know, much of the evidence that they have seems to be based on what Meadows would have told them. And he was listed but, as one of the unnamed co-conspirators, but that's was not right. indicted. And what's, what's fascinating is, you know, the, the special pro- special counsel has taken some pride in saying, I have not cooperated with the Georgia prosecutor. Right. But this really could work. You know, if Meadows has spilled spilled the beans on the federal case and then is indicted at the state case, right. uh, he he really could be, you know, he could be a pretty, pretty sad case by the end of it. It, it could be. It, it's, it was a calculated risk. A very yes. risky decision, um, and we're going to see how it plays out. But I am not the only legal expert out there saying that this was a really big risk. And I've seen no. several say, "Wow, he just confessed to everything <laughs> they've alleged against him." So it it yeah. could be used in evidentiary terms as an admission by a defendant, an admission by a party opponent of this. He admitted to it. He confessed um, in public, and it can be used. And that brings us, let's talk about John Eastman. There's another attorney who's also given public statements this week. Now, his weren't on a court record. They weren't under oath. 
but they were made in a two-part interview with Fox News in public, recorded by how many people, how many news networks. It's been played over and over. So even though he can say, oh, I wasn't under oath, oh, so you lied to the American public, his statements can still be used. And, And from that interview, did you see this? I'm not sure that I have. Okay, so his interview... Um, was on Tuesday and Wednesday with Fox News, with Ingraham. And he is still saying that he believes the election was stolen, that there was fraud in the election. Um, he's saying- Well, Trump is still saying that. Correct. Yeah. They are both saying this publicly, and they're saying, Eastman's, one of his quotes from the Fox News interview was, we did nothing wrong. Then he's saying on public news- nationwide, that he explicitly told Pence on January 4th that rejecting the electoral votes entirely would be foolish, but he then advocated for him at least to try and sort out the impact of the illegality of the election results and delay the vote. I have seen that, yes. I I mean, he he and Cheeseboro Bose seem to have said, seem to be on record as saying, this probably won't hold up in court, but we ought to give it a try. It might work. Uh, in, yeah. in fantasy land, in our mind, it's going to work, so why not? And, and he is saying, you know, they're trying to indict me for being a zealous advocate for my client as an right. attorney. And, and right. I do get that. I have to say, as an attorney myself, you know, you are supposed to find ways in the law, make a good, solid legal argument, even if it's never yes. been made before. Sure. Um, just like this 14th Amendment issue. Well, okay, no one's raised it before, but it doesn't mean that it's illegitimate. Um, so let's talk about it. So as an attorney representing a client, I would hope I would not be you know, charged or indicted for some zealously representing my client. But I think the difference here is the allegation by Willis by Georgia is that he was not just zealously advocating, but that he was actually, as an attorney and as an individual, advocating for something he knew was untrue. Basically malpractice. Malpractice, misinformation, lies, false claims. And as an officer of the court, as an attorney, you're not supposed to submit false claims or allegations right. or things that you know right. aren't true. You're supposed to argue zealously, but and not even with things right, if that you have, true. If you have a client that you believe is going to lie, uh, there you, are you, rules. You, you, you're right. You, you're supposed to advise them not to, right? Yes. Uh, and can, in some cases, even withdraw from a case, right? Correct. You cannot if, support yeah. any, you know, a client in actual criminal behavior, or in lying, any kind of perjury. So if you know that they're doing criminal behavior on almost every ethics rules that I can think of throughout the country, if you know that a client is committing criminal behavior, is engaged in criminal behavior, you cannot use your representation to support that criminal behavior. And I think that's why you know Eastman is up before the California bar, right. where they're saying, we're going to take away your license. You know, we're at least going to review taking away your license. And what now, are we are we going to discuss the Juliana yes, thing too? Yes, that is coming okay. next. So, okay, so good. for Eastman, I think to conclude briefly, is his words, even though they weren't under oath, are just as much able to be used against him in any court 
any of those 19 defendants, I would advise well, us not to talk. <laughs> right. You can't use them against him for perjury, right? Correct. You, you can't you, say you, you perjury. You can use it to, I mean, if you were cross-examining, didn't you say here? Absolutely. This? And, Absolutely. you know, so which is it? You, do you tell the truth only when you're under oath or never? Or <laughs> when you're on Fox News or when you're yeah, in the court. Exactly. Right. When are, when are you actually telling the truth? And even without cross-examination, they can still present it as his own words to try to right. prove that he knew what he was doing and that he was part of this racketeering enterprise. Right. Um, so that leads us to yet another defendant. We're going to hit the last defendant today, part three. Um, so if you don't want to hear about Giuliani, we will see you next week. Um, but if you want to stay tuned, for Giuliani, he's got an entirely different issue, yes. but one that will also impact his claims and his charges where he has a defamation claim case. And it was just, as I understand it, it was just ruled against him. A ruling was made by the judge against him that said right. that he is guilty of defamation of the two Georgia election officials, the mother and the daughter. Right. Of defaming them and telling lies about what they did or did not do with regard to the election, the election results, the election votes and counting, um, that they have brought a defamation claim for him and the judge has ruled in their favor in a default judgment ruling that he did defame them by telling lies and, about and actually, them. Actually, I believe that this is where it gets really complicated. Yes. But it's my understanding that he actually stipulated. Yes. That he had told lies about them. Correct. And when, you know, when you stipulate something, then that becomes for a matter of law, that becomes True. a fact. Yes. Um and why he did that and and I still can't understand, you know, there's some some indication that he's having trouble raising money and getting attorneys for himself. I, I don't know if that came into play here or not, but you know, there's a couple issues here. One is, well, just the most obvious, there's a difference between libel and defamation. Libel is written defamation is oral. This was primarily, as I understand it, these were oral statements that he made Correct. in front of cameras. Slander. And yeah. Right. And they deal not with it's not a claim that he's making against Joe Biden. Correct. Who you would assume running for office, being a seasoned politician would have relatively thick skin. Correct. It's against someone who's, yeah, in a sense, they're public officials, but they're really low level. I mean, yeah. you, you don't expect a, a, a person counting votes to do anything other than count the votes. Uh, they don't have discretionary authority to, to speak of. And so, you know, if this were a public figure, they would have to establish, if he hadn't stipulated, they would have to establish that he made what's called actual malice, that right. he knew the statements were were false or he made them with reckless disregard yes. to whether they were true or false or not. Because these are re relatively private citizens, you have a lower standard of proof here. Correct. But then once you explain, since you're the lawyer here, two kinds of damages that might 
might result from this case. Right. So there's the compensatory and then there's the punitive. And the compensatory is to try to make up for actual damages they incurred. Did they right. lose their job? Did they lose income? Um, did they lose potential workability because of these lies that were passed um, around about them? Did they um, incur the legal fees potentially, depending on the law? In, in I think the, I think the law I think they've that's already been established. My understanding it, is the judge has already said Giuliani has to pay their fees. Yes, uh, up to this point. Correct, but, but that to, was for another also, reason. Right. If, am, am I right? Compensatory damages. Now we're going to get to punity, but mm -hmm. compensatory damages could be also for loss of reputation. Absolutely. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. It's as uh, if I mean, it's pain it, and suffering. Um, if it were a regular personal well, injury right. case, it would be Emotional pain and suffering. Distress. Defamation is a little bit different because it's the impact on your reputation in the community. And right. they're saying, you know, not only is it in the community, but the entire country has been told these things about us. So now, this isn't even just local. This isn't even my local church right. and my local community. This is across the nation that my reputation has been so damaged throughout an entire country that I deserve more compensatory damages. And, and, and it's it's not a fair fight. Correct. It's here's someone, you know, America's mayor, attorney for the president of the United States who's right. beating up on poor little me. Right. And, you know, frankly, for those who watched, the congressional testimony on this, mm -hmm. I thought among the people who testified, this mother and daughter were among the more persuasive. I mean, right. you know, just about anybody, you know, what would you do if the president's one of his lead attorneys starts making accusations against you that aren't true? You, you know, it's not, and particularly if you're intimidated, it's not as though mm -hmm. you're going to grab a mic. And, the, you know, first person is going to, going to give you an answer. To, you're not going to be on equal grounds in responding. Exactly. So I, I think they really have a, you know, whether clear they have a strong case if they've already been awarded the, the well, lawyers. But here's the thing fees. is they've been awarded lawyers fees for a different reason. In this particular case, and this is where it gets really interesting on a legal basis of mm -hmm. not just did they file a case, but the judge has awarded attorney's fees because of discovery issues. So she had ordered dis discovery requests. These are questions and answers, right. questions that one side can pose to another in a lawsuit, and the other side has to answer. They're required. Now, they can make objections, certain objections to, right. well, this is privileged information, you can't have it, or this is irrelevant information. But under most rules, there are certain questions that really have to be answered. You have to produce evidence. You have to produce records. And it's under oath. And in Giuliani's case, apparently these questions were asked and evidence was never produced. Right. And the judge ordered it which is common where you bring a motion to compel discovery. So the, the women made a motion to compel him to produce the records they asked for. The judge granted it, saying, Giuliani, you have until this date to get that and information. And he didn't meet it. Right. So the judge said, well, you violated all of these rules. You haven't produced the evidence. Not only, it, it, they could say, well, we're going to do this as in a trial, we're going to say it's presumed that you destroyed it or we, we presume that it's against you. But in this right. case, she said it's done. We, yeah. We're sanctioning you. 
We're going to sanction you for these violations of discovery. You never produced these records. You never produced, um, I believe it was a lot of electronic records, emails and that sort of thing. His attorneys are saying, well, we had to give it to the FBI. The judge is saying that's no excuse. There is the issue of, well, I've been in this dispute regarding attorney's fees and costs, so I can't get the evidence. But she said it doesn't matter. You haven't produced it. The other side has incurred all of these attorney's fees and expenses to try to obtain the information they're rightfully entitled to. So we're going to force you to pay their attorney's fees and costs for all of this time. But we can't stop, right, Mm -hmm. before an attorney talks about punitive damages. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Let's go and get it. So (laughs) compensatory is just putting you back to where you would have been. Right now, making let's you talk hold. about punitive damages, right? Punit- every attorney loves to talk about punitive. I'm, I'm assuming every every. Oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah. <laughs> punitive damages are on top of the let's make you whole kind of damages, as if money can make you whole. Um, but it's the only thing we have in the legal system. And as a personal injury attorney, that's what I have to talk to other people about. Is there isn't anything else we have in our system to make people whole. We only have money. Um, And it's not enough, but it's what we have. So there's that, but then there's punitives, which says, okay, not only do you have to make me whole, but I am fining you for your extra bad behavior. This is going to make an example of you to other people who would engage in such reckless um, behavior that so substantially harms someone that it was outside of normal negligence. You know, it's almost as though it should have a different name because the what's really what it really is, it's it's deterrent damages. Yes. I mean, it, it's it's pun it's punishment in the hope that other people will look at that and say, My gosh, before I start accusing somebody, I better make sure I have my ducks in a row. I shouldn't I'm gonna do sure that. I have this. Yeah. Yeah. One of the most common examples of punitive damages um, in and I work in Virginia, Maryland and D.C. And in Virginia, there's for personal injury claims, you get punitive damages if it's a car accident that was caused by drunk driving. And it's very similar. We want to deter people from drinking and driving. Right. So it's not just a normal crash. This isn't just negligent, reckless behavior while driving. This is you got behind the wheel while you were drinking. So we're going to punish you. It's punitive, which is a punishment. I wish I could remember the name of the case, but there was a case we used to have in our case book about someone who basically said they couldn't they couldn't help that they were an alcoholic. And what the court said is, well, you know, we we're not. I think they sort of said, we're not sure we can, we can decide that. But even if you can show medically that you have an addiction, to our knowledge, there's no addiction that requires that you drive while you're drunk. Exactly, that you get in a car. Uh, yeah. yeah, and yeah. in Maryland, so they if you are known to be drunk, if you have multiple drunk driving um, charges or convictions, then there's a medical board within the the Motor Vehicle Administration that can suspend your license for a medical condition. So they're not saying, okay, well, if you are medically addicted, um, if you have an abuse of alcohol, well, that's fine. But like you're saying, that doesn't mean you should drive. Right. So they're not trying to punish the addiction. 
They're punishing the behavior of choosing to get in a car. To to go to the bottom line, which is where probably more attorneys go than political scientists. (laughs) But am I right? Punitive damages are often multiples of compensatory damages. Absolutely. They're usually treble damages. Right. There's a case that I think actually got it got lowered in court, but there was a case of the the person who purchased, I believe, a Mercedes or really high class car later discovered that it had had three thousand dollars of repairs on it that he had never been told about. And so they gave him the three thousand or whatever it was. Right. You know, they gave him that plus, you know, three million dollars for daring to sell somebody a new car that really wasn't a new car. Uh, and again, I think the court lowered, I think they maybe gave him like 50 it's million. It's a lot, the, right. Uh, <laughs> they you know, reduced you, it. You can only have, you know, so many multiples before it becomes ridiculous. Yes. But, you know, the deterrent, this is really an, it's really an awful thing. Yes. For a person in power to, in pursuit, and of course it wasn't his, you know, he was working for a client, but- right. In, in pursuit of trying to get somebody elected to go out and lie about somebody, you know, just sort of pick a name out of the hat and, and try to blame them. And the fact that they were right. African-American women, I suggest, probably made them particularly vulnerable, uh, you know, to this, you know, kind of damage to reputation. Absolutely. So, uh, you know, if I were. If, I, I don't think I can be chosen for a, ju- a jury, a, a jury in, in Georgia. So I think I can say if you if you put me on the case, I would be likely to give fairly high punitive <laughs> damages because I think they, I think is something that should be stopped. Right. And and the judge has allowed them. So the judge is saying, OK, there's we're finding in your favor. There is a judgment against Giuliani for defamation. And now there will be a trial on damages only. So how much will the compensatory be? How much will the punitive be? And in the meantime, he's still required to pay the attorney's fees and costs for the litigation thus far based on the discovery issues. So that's where we are. So that's, uh, goodness, we've talked about, I guess, four defendants, Trump, Meadows, Eastman, and Giuliani. Um, Who knows what's next? At this point, I don't know what's coming next. Uh, Each each week will tell, but we hope you've had a good happy hour. This has been a great conversation. Thank you, Dr. Vile, for joining me. You're welcome. All right. We will catch. Yeah, we'll catch everybody else on next week's Legal Weekly Wine, where we do discuss the week's hottest legal topics. Um, I'm Virginia Tarani with Tarani Law LLC, based in Virginia, Maryland, and D.C. We are hosting the Law Unscripted, the Legal Weekly Wine. Lots of titles here with Dr. John Vile, and we will catch you next time.